So uh, the title we've given our series through 1 Samuel is A Heart for God. Because in each chapter of this book and each story that makes up this book, what we see is that all of us, the people in the stories and ourselves as well, we all face uh, two kinds of battles all the time, right? There are outward battles and there are inward battles. Outward battles are, are the struggles that we face in this life, the hills that we have to climb, right? Conflicts, difficulties, circumstances, financial constraints, the, the tangible flesh and blood things that we face that we have to deal with, the hills we climb. But then there are the inward battles, right? We also face inward battles. Inward battles are the things that we struggle with on the inside, the issues of our hearts. These are the unseen things, the, the things that we struggle with, but yet these inward battles, although they're unseen, they have the potential to consume us and destroy us in an even greater way than the outward battles do. Things like pride and envy and bitterness, things like lust and jealousy, if these things consume us, they have the power to destroy us. And really, that is part of the story of what we're reading about here in 1 Samuel. It's possible to win an outward battle and at the same time lose an inward battle. You know that? And it's also possible to lose an outward battle and at the same time win an inward battle. And this is one of the great themes of 1 Samuel. It's summed up in chapter 16, verse 7. Really sums up the heart of the book. And it says this, The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The title of today's message is, All Hail the King. In, in this chapter, we're going to be looking at King Saul. And we see a very clear example of what it looks like for us to face both the outward battles and the inward battles. Let me break it down for you for you note takers. In verses 1 through 11, we're going to be talking about the outward battle. And then from verses 12 through 15, we're going to be talking about the inward battle. So it breaks up that way. Verses 1 through 11, the outward battle. Verses 12 through 15, the inward battle. Now as we've been traveling through the book of 1 Samuel here on Sundays, Last week we looked at chapters 9 and 10 and we saw how Saul was anointed by God to be king over Israel and also God, was, God appointed him to be king. So he was anointed and he was appointed in a big ceremony in front of the whole nation. Yet in spite of that, there were people in the nation who did not throw their support behind Saul. He did not have the enthusiastic support of all of the people of Israel. Not everybody recognized him as king. And we see that. Let's uh, just backtrack a little bit. We're going to look back at chapter 10 and read the last two verses, verses 26 and 27. Saul went home to Gibeah, this is after becoming king, and valiant men went with him whose hearts God had touched. But some rebels said, how can this man save us? So they despised him and brought him no presents, but he held his peace. So there were, there were people in Israel at this time, many people it seems, who were folding their arms and looking at Saul and saying, who do you think you are? We're not going to accept you as king over us. Why should we submit to you? And these people refused to acknowledge Saul as king, and they expressed that uh, sentiment by not bringing him any gifts. Now that's what would have been customary, especially for leaders amongst the people to do, to show Saul their support, to welcome him in as the new king and, and show their allegiance. 
You know, what's interesting about this to me is I think that this is a, a way that many people respond to Jesus as well. They respond to Jesus in the same way that different people responded to Saul. There are some who say, how can Jesus save me? I'm not going to submit to him. Why should I submit to him? Why should I give my allegiance to him? But there are others I believe wise men and women who will bring him gifts to show their allegiance, to show that they recognize and accept him as the anointed savior and the appointed king over them by God. In the story of Saul, right, in, the, in this time, the bringing of gifts was the way that people showed whether or not they recognized and accepted the new king. And I believe the same is true of Jesus. You know, part of the story of Jesus' birth in, in Matthew chapter 2, we read about how after Jesus was born, these wise men came from the east looking for this one who had been born king of the Jews because they wanted to bring him gifts. Why? Because by bringing him gifts, they are acknowledging and accepting and saying, yes, you are king. We, we acknowledge it. Now, we don't know how many of these wise men there were. Uh, we sing the song, right, We Three Kings, but honestly, all we really know is that they brought three kinds of gifts. We don't know if there were three or 33 or 333. There could have been a lot of them. But all we know is that they brought three gifts, and the three gifts that they brought to this newborn king to acknowledge him as king, to respect him as king, were these. They brought him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, why did they do this? Couldn't they have just uh, sent a, a singing telegram or a Hallmark card or something like that? Why travel for weeks? Why take time off of work, maybe even months? Why go that far out of your way to do something like this? Well, here's why, because like with Saul here, the giving of gifts was the way of acknowledging the king. Now think about the things that they brought to Jesus. These, these gifts that they brought were very symbolic. First of all, they brought him gold, right? They gave him money. Kind of like uh, the uncle who always hands you like an envelope full of cash at Christmas or your birthday. That's a good thing. Next, they brought him frankincense. Now frankincense was an aromatic incense that was burned by the priests in the tabernacle and later on in the temple. And lastly, they brought him myrrh. Now, myrrh, this one is the one that's a bit per, uh, peculiar, right? It's a bit strange. Myrrh was an ointment that was used in the burial process. For us, it would be kind of like embalming fluid. I mean, it's kind of a weird thing to show up and give to a baby, right? It's, it's not something you want to you can readily pick up at Babies R Us. It's not something you would bring to a baby shower, right? I mean, imagine that. You're at a baby shower. They're opening up the gifts. Oh, lots of onesies. Thanks. There's a baby bumper for the crib. And oh, yeah, thanks. A prepaid funeral and a little casket and, uh, and some embalming fluid. Well, that's practical, but it's kind of rude. So uh, thanks, I guess, right? Um, but uh, this is because, why did they do that? What a weird gift, right? Why? It's because these wise men understood that the reason this king, Jesus, had come was to lay down his life. They understood that death was intrinsic to his birth. He was born to die so that we might live. But just as in that day, the bringing of gifts was the way of expressing that you recognized and accepted the rule of a king over you, the, the same is actually true today. The way that we recognize, the way that we express that we recognize Jesus as king over us is by bringing gifts. And actually, 
the same gifts that the wise men also brought to Jesus. We bring the same gifts. At least the meaning of them is the same. They brought him gold, right? Which we also express that he is Lord over us, that he is king over our lives by giving of our financial resources to the work of God. We recognize his authority, his lordship by giving tithes and offerings. That's one way. Another way is they brought him frankincense. Now in the Bible, especially in the book of Revelation, we read that frankincense burned in the temple was a symbol of prayers that were ascending to God, prayers and worship and praise, which was rising up to the Lord. And for him, it was a sweet smelling aroma, something that he took delight in. So we recognize the lordship of Jesus over us as we gather together like we are today and we worship together and we offer up praise and, and prayers. And then there's the myrrh, the symbol of death. And we recognize and declare Jesus to be king over us as we take communion. This is something we do here every week at Whitefields because we believe it's that important. And we acknowledge what he did for us on the cross by dying in our place for our sins. So these are the gifts that we bring to him to acknowledge that he is king over us and to declare our allegiance to him. And these are such very important things for these reasons. So here's the situation going into chapter 11. Saul has been anointed as king by God. He's been appointed as king by God. But yet the nation is divided. Saul doesn't have the enthusiastic support of the whole nation of Israel. And here in this chapter, Saul is going to be faced with his first crisis. Now it's been said about leaders that what makes someone a good leader is that when they receive bad news, they respond in great ways. That's what makes you a good leader. Everybody receives bad news, but great leaders respond to bad news in great ways. And in this chapter, we are going to see Saul acting as a great leader. Let's check out verse 1 of chapter 11. Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. So the city of Jabesh-Gilead, this is located on the east side of the Jordan River in the land of Moab, which is currently in the country of Jordan. Now, when they settled into the land of Canaan, uh, you know, we read about how there were certain tribes who decided not to enter into the promised land. And, uh, and Jabesh-Gilead was one of those groups. So they're, they're not in the promised land. They're over in Moab. They're kind of cut off from the rest of the people of Israel. So the residents of Jabesh-Gilead, they wake up one morning and they find that their city is surrounded by an Ammonite army. Now the Ammonites were a nomadic people and uh, they surrounded this city because this is what they did. They plundered, they conquered, they took stuff from other people and that's, you know, how they had their livelihood. So Jabesh-Gilead, uh, again, it's cut off from the rest of the people. That makes them vulnerable to these kind of attacks. So put yourself in their shoes. You wake up one morning, you look out the window, and there's a hostile army surrounding your city. So what do the men of Jabesh-Gilead do? It says that they go up to the leader of the Ammonites, this man named Nahash, and they tell him, let's make a deal, right? Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. On the one hand, we, we, this is understandable, right? Um, because if you're getting mugged, right? You're getting mugged on the street. I don't know if any of you have ever been mugged, but the, the mugger will, might say something like, give me everything you have or I'll kill you. Now, most people would be inclined to say, okay, listen, I'll give you what you want. Just please don't kill me. 
that's basically where these guys were at. They felt they had no other option, that they were not equipped to defend themselves against the Ammonites. And so they figure, let's try to cut a deal with them so they don't harm our wives and children at least, not to mention so that we can keep our lives. So on the one hand, this reaction, trying to cut a deal with them and, and appease them, this is understandable. But I think at the same time, we can't help but feel a little bit disappointed by this, right? We look at this and we can't help but feel, you know, a little bit discouraged that this is their response. Because these are the people of Israel, right? These are the people who have received promises from God. These are the people who know the Lord. And we can't help but wonder... Well, where is their trust in God? I mean, aren't they even going to try calling upon the Lord? Aren't they going to try and ask God to save them? I mean, yes, they're in a difficult place. Yes, they're faced with an impossible circumstance and situation. But don't we serve a God who specializes in the miraculous? Don't we serve a God who specializes in these kinds of miraculous rescues? I think that many times we too are a lot like the men of, of Jabesh Gilead. In theory, we believe that God can do amazing and miraculous things. And we'd love to see God do amazing and miraculous things. But we don't want to be in the position where we need a miracle to happen, right? Uh, but the thing is that oftentimes, that's when God shows his miraculous power. When only a miracle will do. Those kinds of situations. You know, the men of Jabesh Gilead, they were in a... A tough spot. They were in an impossible situation. But check out what they're doing. Rather than looking to God to save them, rather than crying out to the Lord for salvation, they're looking to Nahash the Ammonite and trying to appease him and cut a deal with him so that he'll take it easy on them. I wonder how many times we do something similar. We're faced with an impossible situation and rather than seeking the Lord, we give up and we give in and we compromise just to make it easier. Let's look at verse 2. Nahash the Ammonite answered them, on this condition I will make a covenant with you that I may pluck out all your right eyes and bring reproach on all of Israel. So that's kind of a bummer of a deal, right? Like um, that, that's not a good deal. Um, so the men of Jabesh though, they're faced with this terrible decision. This is a lose-lose situation kind of, right? Do we try to fight this guy and lose our heads? Not to mention we'll probably lose our wives and children. We don't want that to happen. Or do we sit down and let this guy gouge out our eyes? I mean, this is terrible either way. You know what's interesting about this guy Nahash? You know what the name Nahash means? It means serpent or snake. Now that's a cool name if you're like in a biker gang. But uh, in many ways, I think that if you look at Nahash... And maybe that's why he called himself that, because he thought of himself as a, a tough guy. But if you look at Nahash, I want to show you that there's some parallels between the ways that Nahash attacks Jabesh Gilead and the ways that another serpent, who's, one who's called a serpent in the Bible, Satan, attacks us. First of all, Nahash tried to intimidate them. He tried to intimidate them. And that is what Satan tries to do with us as well. He will try to intimidate do you know that Satan can never overcome your will? Did you know that? He can never make you do something against your will. He can never take over and you know. He, all he can try to do is try to get you to surrender your will to him. Right? And that's what Nahash is doing here. Right? He's like, 
I want you to surrender your will to me. I want you to sit down and take it and let me gouge out your eye. Um, he's trying to intimidate them. He's using fear to get them to surrender their will to him. Now that's what Satan does because Satan can never overcome your will. He can never make you do something against your will. He can only try and get you to surrender your will to him. The next thing that Nahash does is he tries to humiliate these people. And this is one of the great tactics of Satan, is to humiliate people. You know, the enemy of your soul, he wants to bring you low. And not in the good way of being brought low in, in humility before God, but in the bad way of feeling so ashamed and even, you know, feeling so terrible that you're, you're not even willing to approach God because you feel humiliated. And the last thing we see, Satan, like Nahash, he wants to demoralize you. He wants to demoralize you so that you lose the will to fight. Let's carry on in verse 3. Let's see how they respond. Then the elders of Jabesh said to him, Hold off for seven days that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel, and then if there's no one to save us, we'll come out to you. So the elders of Jabesh respond to Nahash by asking for seven days. They say, give us seven days to make up our decision. Now this is kind of a curious thing, right? I mean, why would Nahash agree to give these guys seven days to decide about this? Now there, there's a few things here. One of them is that if you look at the history of Jabesh Gilead, back in the book of Judges, there was a time when there was a bit of a, a civil war when the people of Benjamin sinned against God and a whole nation of Israel came against them. And guess who's the only tribe in all of Israel who decided not to show up at, at this place where they were all meeting. I think it was Mizpah. It was Jabesh Gilead. They're the dudes who kind of said, you know what, we're not going to be part of that. We're just going to do our own thing over here. So I wonder if... Nahash the Ammonite knows that. He knows that, well, look, these people are outside the nation of Israel. They don't even participate in the activities of the nation. Nobody's going to come help these guys. Fine. Go ask for help, but you're not going to get it. I also wonder if he was just a bit overconfident. Like, he thinks he's got this one in the bag. Like, fine, try to get reinforcements. I'll beat you anyway, that kind of thing. Uh, but in a way, I think the place where the men of Jabesh Gilead are at is a very good place they're in a place where they understand that they cannot save themselves. They understand that they are in need of a savior. They're in need of someone to come from the outside and bring salvation to them because they are in a hopeless situation left to themselves. That is not a bad place for anybody to be in. You know, that's the place that all of us really need to come to in our lives in order for us to receive a savior, in order for us to receive Jesus Christ as our savior, until you understand that there is no way for you to save yourself, you cannot know Jesus Christ as your savior. And that really is the message that's at the heart of the Bible, that is the gospel, that all of us have sinned, that we are all in a hopeless situation. We are facing certain and eternal death because of our sin, and we cannot save ourselves. But God, the good news is that God has come to us as our Savior. Jesus Christ has died to rescue us and to save us. And what does Jesus save us from? Does he save us from our sins? Yes. Does he save us from Satan? Absolutely. But he also saves us from the judgment of a righteous God who judges sin. All of us have sinned. Therefore, all of us are deserving of the righteous judgment of God. 
But the message of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has come to save us because we cannot, we could not save ourselves. And my prayer for every person who hasn't yet gotten to that place of, of acknowledging that is that, that they would know and understand, like the men of Jabesh Gilead did, that they desperately need a Savior. Let's read on from verse 4. So the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field. And Saul said, What troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul, and he heard this news, and his anger was greatly aroused. Now isn't this interesting? Saul hears about what's happening to the men of Jabesh Gilead and it says the Spirit of God comes upon him and what happens as a result? As a result, he gets mad. He gets angry. And that's interesting, right? That's not what we generally think of when we think of someone being filled with the Spirit or having the Spirit come upon them. Uh, we don't generally think, well, that would cause you to become angry, right? Um, but that's what happened here in Saul's uh, Saul's situation. Now, how is that possible? You know, this is important to understand that, that when you're filled with the Spirit, the purpose of it is that your heart would be aligned with God's, that your desires would be changed and come into alignment with God's desires. And what that means is that you love the things that God loves and you hate the things that God hates. You know that there are things that God hates. And I will say this, this is important, that God loves people. God loves people, but there are things that God hates. For example, God hates injustice, and we should hate injustice. God hates oppression. He hates exploitation of the weak and the helpless. God doesn't like the. God hates those things. You know, one very interesting thing we read about Jesus is in Hebrews 1, verse 9. It says this, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has appointed you with the oil or anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Jesus not only loved righteousness, but he hated wickedness. There were times when Jesus was angry. He was angry when he saw money changers in the temple ripping people off in God's name. He was angry with Peter when Peter tried to stop him from the mission of going to Jerusalem and going to the cross. Throughout the Old Testament, we read that God is angered by injustice and malice. That is a, a holy anger, a righteous anger. And, and if our hearts are in line with God's heart, then we too will be people who love righteousness and hate wickedness. You know, in, in Proverbs chapter 6, we read this verse. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. You know, it should make us angry when we hear about people who do terrible things to other people, people who cause suffering. We should be more than just sad about it. It should, it should stir us up. We should be upset about it. But, but this is also very important. Holy anger is not just anger for anger's sake. I'm going to say that again because it's important. Holy anger is not just anger for anger's sake, right? The purpose of holy anger is, is that it should motivate us. It should move us from where we are to where God wants us to be, 
right? It should motivate us to do something. It should motivate us to righteous action that puts an end to wickedness. And that's exactly what we see in this story. When the Spirit of the Lord came upon Saul, it caused him to become angry about what was happening to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, and that anger motivated him to action. It wasn't just that Saul was walking around angry all the time, like, hey, man, he's just like, whoa, that guy's always upset, you know? He's scowling at everybody, yelling at people. He's angry. No, this was holy anger, and that anger motivated him to righteous action righteous action to put a stop to something that was evil and bad and set something right check out what he does in verse 7 so Saul took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers saying whoever does not uh, go out with Saul and Samuel to battle so shall it be done to his oxen and the fear of the Lord fell on the people and they came out with one consent so FedEx or UPS or DHL shows up and rings your doorbell and you're thinking, you know, I don't remember ordering anything, right? So you open it up and, oh, it's a, it's a bloody piece of a dead ox with a handwritten note that says, we're going to fight for the men of Jabesh Gilead. Either you join us or we're going to do this same thing to your livestock. Now, livestock in that day, that was their livelihood. That'd be like if you sent somebody a note and said, you know, with like a, like a broken you know, car part and it said, either you come with us or we're going to set your car on fire, right? Now, this seems more like a message from the Godfather than, a, than from Father God, right? It seems more like a message from the mob than a message from God. Um, but I have to say that I don't think that Saul was wrong in sending this strong message. Because here's the deal. Saul is facing a nation that is divided. A nation that's completely apathetic about everything, right? And right now what Saul needs to do as a leader is he needs to wake up these people. He needs to get their attention, shake them out of their apathy and their indifference. Again, not, not only were they politically divided, these people just flat out did not care that much about each other. Everybody's kind of caught up with their own thing. And so Saul sends this very dramatic message to the towns of Israel to get their attention. Because you know why? This was a time and a situation when it would have been wrong to do nothing. It would have been wrong to do nothing. You know, many times we see situations, we see things going on, and we say, you know what, that is messy. I don't want to get my hands dirty. I don't want to get involved in that mess. I don't want to get in the middle. I'm just going to stay on the sidelines and let this thing play out, right? But you know, the truth is that sometimes it is actually sin to do nothing in the face of something wrong. And it takes a lot of wisdom to discern when that is. But, but sometimes it's true. Sometimes it is wrong. Sometimes it's sin to see something bad happen and something wrong, something evil, and to do nothing, to stay on the sidelines. You know, recently I've been reading the biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer that, that Eric Metaxas wrote a few years ago. It's great. I'd recommend it for anybody. But uh, Bonhoeffer, you know, he was a pastor and a theologian in Germany during World War II, during the Nazi period, and he became a leader of the Confessing Church. Now, what the Confessing Church was, it was a movement of Christians who opposed the Nazis and refused to comply with Nazi policies. Bonhoeffer also became, later on, a part of a conspiracy to get rid of Adolf Hitler. But these conspirators got caught, and Bonhoeffer, along with others, they were executed by the Nazi regime shortly before Germany left the war. 
But Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he said this. He said, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. Sometimes it's wrong for us to see something happening that's, that's not right and to do nothing. Or to say, you know what, I'm just going to sit this out. I'm going to stay on the sidelines. I don't want to get my hands dirty. So Saul sends this dramatic message to the people of Israel. And the people respond in an overwhelming way, a great way. It says, the fear of the Lord fell upon the people and they came out to fight in one accord. Saul has united a nation. This divided people, he's brought them together. Now let's check out what happens next. Verse 8, when he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who came, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. Then the messengers came and reported it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. So the men of Jabesh, they get word that help is on the way. This is all good news. And so they say, okay, let's go tell the Ammonites, you know, that tomorrow we'll be ready and they can, you know, come and do their thing to us, right? Uh, now this statement they say is technically true, but it's intentionally vague, right? They say, so uh, tomorrow we're going to come out to you and you can do to us whatever you want. Now that's technically true. I mean, they are going to come out to him tomorrow and, and, you know, the Ammonites can try to do whatever they want, but there's going to be 300,000 men of Israel that they're going to have to go through in order to do it. Uh, you know, but at least this way they'll be able to say, well, we did come out to you and, you know, you could have done to us whatever you wanted if you wanted to, right? So let's look what happens in the battle, verse 11. It was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and killed Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. It was a rout, just a complete rout. They wiped out these Ammonites. God has raised up King Saul and now the whole nation is unified. They're working together. They're fighting together. It was a perfect military strategy. He splits the people up into three groups and they just overwhelm the Ammonites. A great victory was won for Israel that day. You know, by all outward appearances, we would have to say that this was a glorious day for Israel and a glorious day for King Saul. But here's the thing. Many times in life, and, and I believe this is a situation we're reading about, but in our lives as well, there are outward battles that we face and there are also inward battles. Here in this section, up until this point, we've been talking about the outward battle, the physical flesh and blood conflicts that Saul had to deal with. The outward battles he faced were a divided nation and a city held under siege by thugs. And, and so here we see that Saul, on this day, won the outward battle. But there was another battle that Saul was facing, the inward battle. And the inward battle was actually more important than the outward battle. And the rest of this chapter really describes that inward battle. You know, like King Saul, all of us face outward battles and inward battles every day. Outwardly, there are, there are struggles and challenges you face. There are things you deal with at work, in relationships, in finances. And it is possible to succeed in the outward battles and yet fail at the inward battles, lose the inward battles. 
You know, there are plenty of people who succeed at their jobs, they win at their jobs, but their hearts are completely given over to conceit or envy or lust. They've won the outward battles, but they're losing the inward battles. It's also possible to lose the inward battles and at the same time win the out, I'm sorry, it's possible to lose the outward battle and at the same time win the inward battle. You know, there are a number of people who are great examples of this in the Bible. Perhaps the greatest of them is King David, who we're going to re be reading about in future chapters. David, for years, although he was anointed king of Israel, he lived as a fugitive. He was hiding out. He was on the run. He was living in caves. He was fearing for his life. He was losing the outward battle. But at the same time, he was winning the inward battle. His heart was in the right place. He was a man of integrity whose heart was fully given over to God. And although he was losing the outward battles, he was winning the inward battle. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I mentioned him just a minute ago, he tried to put an end to Nazi atrocities, but yet he was captured and executed. He lost the outward battle, but you know what? He won the inward battle. His heart was in the right place with the Lord. And so on this day, yes, Saul won the outward battle, but what about the inward battle? How did he do on the inward battle? Well, you know what? Actually, on this day, Saul won the inward battle too. Let's check it out from verse 12. The people said to Samuel, Who is he who said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death today, for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. There are three big issues that God is dealing with within Saul right now in these two verses. First of all, we're dealing with insecurity, right? Saul is being tempted by insecurity. He's struggling with a sense of insecurity. When Saul first became king, there were people who doubted him. There were people who rejected him. There were people who said, we will not have that man reign over us. We will not acknowledge him as king over us. So Saul is battling feelings of insecurity. And had he been a man who was given over to insecurity, here is a chance for him to get rid of his critics. Secondly, he is struggling, or he's facing the temptation for revenge. These men did not give him their support. They didn't give him any gifts. Here Saul is faced with the opportunity, the temptation to take revenge out on these people. If he wants it, it's his. And thirdly, the big one, right, is pride. Saul just won a great victory. He just united the nation. The question is, will this go to his head? Is he going to become puffed up with pride? Here's your opportunity, Saul, to teach everybody a lesson. Whoever doubted you, let him have it. But look at what Saul does in verse 13. He says, Not a man shall be put to death today, for the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Had Saul given in to the temptation of pride, he would have taken credit for this himself. But he didn't. He didn't say, I have given victory to Israel. No, he said, today, you know what? This wasn't about me. God just used me. This is about the Lord. The Lord works salvation in Israel today. This was a good and glorious day. This was a day in which the outward battle was won and the inward battle was won. And it was a good day in that regard. But let me ask you this. How about your life? How are things going? I would imagine for a lot of you, outwardly things are going pretty well, right? But the question is, how's the inward battle going? What are the issues that you're struggling with in your heart? 
You know, these were the things that Saul was dealing with inside. Insecurity, uh, the temptation to get revenge. He's dealing with pride. And God was working on him in these areas. These were important battles that Saul faced. And, and I have to say this. In fact, these were even more important battles than the outward battles that he was fighting. Because here's why. And I'll tell you this. If you follow the life of Saul from this point on until the end of his life at the end of 1 Samuel, what you're going to find is that Saul doesn't keep winning this battle. By the end of 1 Samuel, Saul will be completely given over to what? To pride, to revenge, and to insecurity. He will lose this battle. On this day, Saul won this battle, but soon enough, Saul is going to lose this battle, and he will allow his heart to be overcome with pride and insecurity and the desire for revenge. And you know what? Those things, those inward battles that he loses, they will be his ruin. They will ruin him. They will ruin the nation. This nation he just united will once again be divided. He will lose his position as king over this. In the end, he will even cause his own death over these things, these inward battles. You know, this will be Saul's legacy. When people think of Saul, you just mentioned the name King Saul to people who know the Bible. What do they think? Do they think a hero of Israel, a man anointed with the Spirit of God, a great leader? No. Unfortunately, they don't, although that's what he was at this point. No, when you say the name King Saul, people think a selfish, insecure man full of pride who cares nothing about the will of God or anybody else except for himself. You know, at this point, Saul was winning not only the outward battle, but he was winning, more importantly, the inward battle. But the sad tragedy of Saul is that he did not continue to win those battles. So how about you? Those issues of your heart that God is dealing with in your life. You may be standing strong today, and that's great. It's only by God's strength that you can have victory for a prolonged period in the inward battle. And God wants to build whatever your strength is today, wherever you're standing strong today, wherever you have victory today, God wants to build on that for tomorrow, lest you end up like King Saul, someone who wins outward battles but loses the inward battles. Because like King Saul, every one of us faces outward battles and inward battles, and in the end, winning the inward battles is of greatest importance, and we can only do that as we cling to the Lord. Let's finish this up in verse 14. Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. Then they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Now, back in chapter 10 last week, we read about this, how they had a big ceremony and they declared Saul to be king. Now they're doing it again. It's kind of weird, right? Why are they doing this? Well, here's why. Samuel's looking across the people and he's saying, you know what, last time we did this, before everybody was united in chapter 10, the nation was divided. Not everybody was supportive of Saul, but now everybody is. So we're going to do this again. We're going to declare Saul as king again. For those who hadn't recognized him as king, this was their chance to do so. For those who had already recognized him as king the first time, this was a chance for them to renew their allegiance to him. Maybe you're here today and you have never made Jesus Christ king of your life. You have never committed yourself to following him wholeheartedly. You've never made him your Lord. Well, today is the day for you to do that.
You know that today is the day for you to make that step and do exactly that, to declare him as king over your life. Maybe there are others of you here today. You've already made Jesus king of your life at some point back in 1994 or 2004, but you need to renew him as king. Today is the day for you to do exactly that. That's what these guys did. To renew him as king over your life, to renew your devotion, your allegiance to him. Maybe there are areas of your life where there's compromise or sin. You worry, and your heart is convicted looking at this and you say, if God is really king over my life, then he should rule and reign over every area of my life. We need a king. You know that? We need a king. When you have a king, you have a defense against Nahash when he comes to attack you. When you have a king, you have someone to lead you. When you have a king, you have someone to rule in your heart and fight the temptations that you face inwardly. We need a king. We need a king. And today is a great day for us to end up in the same place that the people of Israel ended up here at the end of chapter 11, where, where, they, where some declare their allegiance to him for the first time ever, and others who are already uh, tied to him, they renew their allegiance to him. Look at the last few words of the chapter. It says this, all the people of Israel rejoiced greatly. May that be true of us as well, as we renew him as king in our hearts, that we would be filled with joy. That as we receive the Lord as, as king of our lives, that he would give us the strength to win both the outward battles, but more importantly, to win the inward battles. That we might win those day by day as he rules and reigns in our hearts and our minds and gives us the strength to overcome. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, this morning we do declare that you are king. Lord, that you are the sovereign Lord, that you are the ruler. Lord, I pray for anyone here today who has never made that declaration in their heart, who's never made that step, that choice, that he will be king. I will declare him king of my life, and I will bring him gifts to show him that he is king of my life. Lord, would you work in those hearts this morning, and would they leave today having made a declaration, Lord, that you are king in their life. And Lord, I pray for any of us who are here today and we're in need of renewing our allegiance to you. Lord, as we take communion today, it's such a great opportunity for us to take the body of Christ broken for us and the blood of Christ shed for us and to remember, Lord, what you did for us on the cross. Lord, may we, as we do that, renew our allegiance to you as King. And we give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.